This is the Small Town Youth Ministry Podcast, Episode 8, Dealing with Small Town Issues. To the Small Town Youth Ministry Podcast, where our mission is to encourage and equip small and rural area youth workers. Today, I have a very special episode. This episode marks number eight, which is a milestone for us. Doing research and podcasts before I ever even started this project, I learned that there are many podcasts that succumb to a phrase called pod fade, which is where the hosts burn out and they basically lose interest. And uh, over 70% of podcasts don't make it to episode eight. So I'm very excited to be presenting this one. But uh, some other new and different things are this is the first time I'm recording the episode in person with somebody. And it's also a special guest because they're my boss. And so I'm going to introduce Mike Mincer to you all. Say hello, Mike. Hey, everybody. It's so. I'm um, glad to be here, and I hope I'm not the one that crashes out your uh, episode eight and makes this whole thing tank on you. No. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny that you call me your boss, too. We're just, uh, you know, I mean, I hope most of our listeners are probably uh, involved in rural ministry and, and obviously in small churches with very small staff like our own. Uh, we just see each other as, as uh, members of one big team. Uh, Jesus is our mm-hmm. senior pastor, and we're just all on mission under him trying to do our best. And so you and I have different gifts and talents that uh, we use. But, uh, you know, rural ministry is definitely, you have to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. And and so I do preach on Sunday mornings and try and oversee the entire flock and mission. But I also just got done mowing and spraying the grass. And <laughs> Yes, this is literally right before we started recording. And, and you are our next generation's pastor in charge of all things uh, children, tweens, teens, and, and, and also technology. And <laughs> yeah, and, 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 <laughs> and, <laughs> but no, thanks for, for, for inviting me on today. So why don't you tell everybody real quickly a little bit about your background? Oh, my background. I am, uh, I am unique in the ministry world. I'm actually born and raised in the general area of uh, where we are. Uh, my wife and I were high school sweethearts and actually live in the house that I grew up in. We live in the next uh, small town over from here. So the, the town the church is located in where we're sitting right now in my office is about five thousand people and we live in the next town over which is about one thousand people but i am a local um graduated from the school district here went to the local community college um ended up being a school teacher for three and a half uh well three years uh in the, in that next community over which is now consolidated with with this community mm-hmm. um and uh from there uh just got involved in this church um, when it was a church plant, when we were meeting in homes and talking about launching a church and was a a high-capacity volunteer and helped with worship and youth uh, for the first few months. And then the, the founding planting pastor, we call him, um, he hired me uh, that next summer during summer break to be full-time associate pastor, youth leader, worship leader, 
and uh, I resigned my teaching job and, and started ministry full-time and started going to uh, Bethel Seminary uh, online at that same time. And so, yeah, I spent, what, seven or eight years as the as the youth pastor, associate pastor. And then in 2014, after our second pastor moved on, um, I ended up uh, getting the job of what we call lead pastor or senior pastor. And, and a year later, uh, you became uh, the youth pastor with me, and we've been rocking and rolling ever since, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it has been a crazy ride. Uh, all good things, great growth in the church, but that's probably another topic for another time. Today, we're actually going back to the topic of poverty in small towns. And if you haven't listened yet, I would suggest go back, listen to episodes two and three, which are about reaching and discipling youth in poverty. Whereas today, we're going to be talking a little more about interactions with the families your youth may be coming from, as well as some things you may need to be prepared to respond to. But before we get there, I wanted to frame some understanding because I believe we'll be coming back to some of these ideas a time or two throughout the podcast. So let's first understand the reasons some families are in this situation before we address some of the side effects, and then we'll get to how our listeners should respond to these things. Uh, a brief explanation is why there is this poverty problem. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, within the last couple of years, surveys have come back and poverty is high in rural areas. An estimated one in six American people in rural areas are below the poverty line. And why? There's some pretty significant contributing factors. One of the greatest is high school dropout rates are much higher than in the suburbs. And then because not going on to higher education, they're looking for local jobs. And most new and well-paying jobs aren't in rural areas. Add to that, rural non-marital cohabitation and childbearing is happening at a rapidly increasing rate. And in turn, so is single parenthood. See, one big factor being reported by 38% of unmarried couples moving in together is finances, which seems understandable given the job situation for young adults that we've already described in rural areas. For those couples who decide to move in together, it ends up that 40% of the couple split within five years. And if that relationship conceived a child, it results in a broken home and then very likely a struggling single mother. And this is quite possibly the reason where situations Having a female as the sole head of a household, meaning they do not have a spouse, make up 77.9% of the non-metro poor families. Finally, one of the most stable resources in rural areas next to the cheaper housing is a proximity to family that can help support an individual. So many will stay in this area and it limits their possibilities at escaping poverty. The USDA recently released a report uh, mentioning that individuals in such circumstances will face impediments beyond those of their individual circumstances, and it can create limited opportunities for poor residents that become self-perpetuating. And alongside those self-perpetuating circumstances, there's a greater chance to get involved in what I would personally describe as these self-medicating distractions from reality. Uh, that small towns are so good at creating what we're going to be talking about today. It ends up building a playground for poverty and a system of what some might call generational sin, weakness and tendencies that are handed down through generations that just may seem inescapable to some. So, Mike, what's your perspective on those types of experiences, especially as the local growing up and seeing these things? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, we're in rural Iowa, um, very ag centered area. Um, a lot of the things that I heard you just listing off are, are very uh, true, um, but they're also generalities. Um, uh, so there's certainly ebbs and flows to certain specific communities. And, oh, sure. You know, and, and I wouldn't want to get off the impression that even our community is, is incredibly uh, poor. We do have um, our own segment of poverty uh, here, but we have, um, you know, uh, quite a large middle class and and uh, and a small upper class even in our our area as well, um, but you know we do see these things. You see that uh, a lot of the higher paying jobs are in the cities. That's been the trend over the last few decades, and so uh, a lot of your your students that graduate and go on to higher education don't come back. You know, and um, uh, it's only been in the last few years actually that we've actually seen some industry uh, pick back up in our area and some of those families realizing that um, with the current temperature of culture, they're moving, they are moving back in greater numbers and figuring out ways to start businesses around here, you know, but, but as far as the poverty goes, yeah, I mean, definitely we, we have our fair share uh, and then some of substance abuse. Um, in rural Iowa, and I would say meth is is one of the biggest uh, problems in our area. And then, unfortunately, again with the current uh, culture climate, um, you know, marijuana use, uh, though it's not legal here, um, has has always been around, and and I think is around in increasing numbers and in younger ages these days. But but meth is is the real bad one that is really ruining you know a lot of lives as far as substance abuse goes. Uh, and then certainly, you know. Um, one of the great things about living in our area is the cost of living is quite low. Um, however, the pay that you get for jobs is also quite low. And so mm -hmm. once you are here, in, you know, you can't sell your house here and move to the cities. You, what, you're, what you would be able to afford is, is <laughs> would not be very much. And so you can kind of get stuck here. And um, and because the job opportunities in rural Iowa are limited, if something uh tragic does happen where uh, a company closes its doors or you just uh, find yourself in a position where you've lost your job, there's not a plethora of options out there for you. Um, and sometimes not jobs that are the what you want to do. Uh, you just don't have that luxury of being able to choose something that you want to do. You end up accepting something that you have to do or, or spending a lot of time on unemployment. And so that does perpetuate that being stuck in poverty thing even in our own area and then certainly we have our fair share of of the the fallout from all of those things uh, including the impact that it has on families um, single families uh, kids being raised without um, super positive adult role models and uh, you know a plethora of other <laughs> other things yeah. that happen there and, and again this isn't like 90 percent of our community oh, no. but certainly uh, certainly it's a chunk you know, it's a chunk of even our little rural community here. Yes, yes. So while one in six people may be below that poverty line, it does not mean that all of them suffer from these same symptoms, but right. it is enough to be noticed. I was talking to Mike prior to this about kids in my generation of the youth ministry that meet this. And you kind of echoed back like, yes, I also had that kid, not literally the same kid, but met the same 
uh, descriptions and stuff in yours as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, one that comes to mind, you know, was, was growing up in a single, with a, in a single parent household. And, and I remember, um, we took uh, this kid to camp one year and he packed a whole duffel bag full of junk food and energy drinks. And, um, he ran through that whole duffel bag of stuff in like two days and then had this major sugar crash and was just unable to almost move for a couple of days and we realized it was it was his diet you know this yeah. this this kid's diet was was sugary food and 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 energy drinks and when he ran out his body didn't know how to react and so it gave us an opportunity to to sit down and have a long conversation with him while we were hundreds of miles from home and and you know probably 30 miles from the local convenience store yeah <laughs> and uh we were in the middle of wyoming at the time actually and and uh we talked about diet and how nutrition is important you know and uh, you're trying to give people Jesus, but at the same time, uh, you realize that some of their basic needs aren't, aren't being met at home, and it, it breaks your heart, you know. Yes, and that's actually a great segue into this next part. You see, these problems that the adults have end up having side effects on the kids. Poor nutrition or malnourishment is possibly one of them. I can also tell you from personal experience uh, that what the adults are up to usually leaves the kids open to times of no supervision, leading them to make their own mistakes but also developmentally there's a lot of scary things happening with some of these kids a report from the cdc recently actually uh found that there's lots of disabilities developing in nearly 20 percent of children 13 to 17 in rural areas it's almost one in five which is higher than urban areas and they say these include attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism, learning disability, intellectual disabilities like uh, stuttering or stammering, uh, as well as other developmental delays, and uh, trying to figure out what the possible link could be. There's been, of course, plenty of things in recent decades talking about issues stemming from possible substance abuse during pregnancy, uh, but it's also possible that experiencing abuse leads to these developmental problems. Uh, there is a research that I was reading uh, from scientists in the UK uh, just looking at brain imaging of teenagers and investigating potential links between home life and brain development. And the study found that the brain scans were revealing children who experienced mild to moderate family problems up to the age of 11 suffered impaired brain development uh, and could be at risk of different psychiatric illnesses. And when I read that, I started thinking and like making connections of kids I know. It was just like, oh, yeah, there was a period of when abusive boyfriend was living with a mom. And just like I'm seeing why this kid maybe struggles with uh, quite a few things. And uh, it's, it's not a direct linear like proof that like A leads to B, which leads to C. But we can see that there are uh, paths that these could happen upon. And it's sad for these things to happen to the kids, whether physically, mentally, or by the developing of their own habits, whether, like I said, it's because their parents aren't around, or maybe the parents are around and they're doing things and they're setting bad examples to the kids. And so I just want to say to listeners, this may be something to look for signs of in your youth. And if you do see them, then you also may need to be prepared for possible interactions with their parents. Uh, which is going to be a large part of this episode. And so uh, let's get to it. Uh, when the problems of parents put the parent in a situation where they're looking for assistance. 
For some reason now, they don't have the money they need when they need it because of some vice. Maybe substance abuse led them to spend all their money and now they don't have money to pay for kids' necessities like back to school gear or Christmas. Um, maybe they've just been irresponsible and so now they're needing someone to help them get utilities turned back on. Uh, or if it was a, a relationship issue, they now quickly have to find themselves a new place to live. No matter the position that you're in at your church, senior pastor, the youth pastor, the worship pastor, the secretary, you can guarantee that at some point in time, there's going to be an individual who walk in the doors of your church with an experience like this. It's just a matter of when. And you should be prepared with knowledge. And of course, that knowledge will lead you in the actions that you take. And we're going to get into those actions very soon. But first, let's just discuss discuss with our listeners how you can get your finger on the pulse of what's plaguing your community, because knowing those problems will help you be prepared to adequately respond to these individuals that come walking in the front door of your office. Uh, good, good question. And let me first start out by saying what we're not condoning here is how do you get into the gossip circles to find out the the rumors and the gossip of what's going on with individual families? Mm. Uh, certainly, um, every community has that, and I think in a small community, it's it's just as bad, if not worse, uh, the the talking that goes on because uh, everybody's connected to everybody somehow. Um, but but I think that you know having the finger on the pulse of what's going on in the community allows you to know things. It allows you to know. You know, if a if a business is shutting down and how that's going to affect people, or if a major event has happened that's going to affect a group of people in your community, how do you even know that those things uh, have happened uh, besides social media? Because um, you and I sit in very different positions. I was born and raised here. I've lived here for 40 years. <laughs> oh, okay, let's not betray uh, your age. Uh, uh, up to this, up to this point, and. Uh, you know, growing up here and being a part of the school district as a as a student, you're quite plugged into the community at large. And then being a parent of, uh, we had two boys and having them go through the school system, just you know, at games and sporting events and and music events and art events and all that kind of stuff, uh, you develop a relationship with people um, that are a little further out in your circle of influence than you would if you were just staying in a tighter bubble. Let's say. And so I've realized uh, since my boys graduated high school how important it is for me to, uh, to, to try harder to stay plugged into certain aspects like the culture in the school uh, community. Um, and so having a few friends who are teachers helps. I try and volunteer. Uh, I've volunteered at, at quite a few of our track meets lately, um, running some of the field events and announcing and, and uh, attending games still and, and just doing what you can to stay plugged in to community. And obviously, I, I talk about school a lot because in a small community, the school is a hub um, for socialization. Uh, when there's a football game or a basketball game or something like that going on, we don't have a lot of other options for entertainment and, and things that gather that many people together. So for us, it's school, excuse me, school activities that, that mostly do that. But uh, stay plugged into community, volunteer in the community. Um, as you get to know people and the longer you're in a community, you'll begin to, you'll begin to understand the, the families and the situations that are generational, um, the situations that have been around for decades and understanding why. Um, and I find myself helping to explain some of those things to you, Kyle, because I've been around for decades. I can see patterns 
that are really hard to see if you're new uh, to a community. So for those of you who are who are brand new to a community um, yourself, you've been hired at a church uh, as a as a youth pastor, or you're volunteering as a youth pastor or a youth leader in your community, and you're new to the community. It's really important for you to have somebody else on your team that's been around longer um, who can help help you understand those dynamics and those things that are going on. And, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of my two cents on the pulse of the community. And that's great stuff. And that's things that I've tried to replicate in my time being here. Uh, but of course, it had to start somewhere when you didn't have any standing in the community. And for our listeners who may be those who are transplanting themselves into it, maybe this is your first time in full-time ministry after college, I wanted to give you some advice on where to start. And the first thing I'd say is try to be as local as you can. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And so I tried to be as towny as possible. And that meant, first off, is like, I'm not going to dress like a yuppie. Not that I could grow the hair uh, uh, on top of my head, because like a man bun and skinny jeans don't like scream like uh, too too much of a tension draw in a positive way in a town like this. But I did grow a big beard and I wear old clothes, you know, and I go shop in the cheap grocery store gas station to be seen where these people are at. And when I talk to them, I don't talk bad about the little community or how much I miss my city life because that would make me unapproachable and I want to be as approachable as possible and then I want to try to increase the opportunities I have for face conversations by inviting the community into our doors in non-threatening ways Uh, in this community have ran a free after school program in other communities we've done things like no cost garage sales for people to come and uh, get a good deal on clothes um, uh, activities like parents night out uh, for parents to be able to get away and the youth serve the by offering a babysitting service uh, even at this church even though it's semi fundraiser we've done a chili cook-off and uh, year after year it's been a pretty popular thing for people to attend it's a great way to meet some of those people also one final thing i would say that can help in giving you insight into some of these families lives is being visible on facebook We know a lot of us, at least, that this is a dying platform. Some people refuse to even use it. But this is where the moms of your small town kids are probably on and at. And if you friend them, first off, you're going to get a great opportunity to send them info about your programs. But occasionally, uh, you'll see this lack of discretion that comes out in their posts. I've seen quite a few where it's just like they decided to publicly Talk about the people who are giving them lip about, I don't know, their husband's most recent arrest or something like that. All this kind of like small town drama. It's like like I said, there's no discernment. Uh, They'll just post right out there for the world to see. And uh, suddenly you will be getting a lot of information. Uh, So there's just a couple of things as far as from the outsider's perspective about how you can try to get a finger on the pulse. Yeah, and I, you know, I would add to that, and you can edit this out if if this doesn't if this doesn't pertain the way you were thinking. But I, you know, behind the what we're talking about today, we want to have a heart to be a church for the unchurched, or to reach mm-hmm. the people who are hard to reach. And sometimes those, you know, that that can be people who are caught in poverty. It can, it can be a, a, a lot of different things. But um, you're you're talking about being available, you know, and at our church. We've tried very hard to make our atmospheres uh, even something that is approachable for people who have not 
who would not normally darken the doors of a church, you know? And so uh, we've chosen as a whole church here that our atmosphere, if you walked into our building, it, it seems a little bit more like a coffee shop uh, yes. than a church in and of itself. And I know that many of our listeners may not have the ability to control their atmosphere uh, at the church you are at, um, but controlling the atmosphere of your events and things um, I'll just share a little story. As a teacher, one of the things that I learned is that if we always wanted to get parents in the building and parents involved in the lives of their students um, so that there was a better uh, communication between teachers and parents uh, as we both are trying to raise their children. And if a parent had bad experiences at school as a student, it was intimidating for them to walk through the doors even as an adult because it brought back this flood of emotions oh, of all yeah. these bad experiences that they had had in their youth. And I think that the same thing can happen with a church sometimes is you're trying to reach uh, unreached people, you're trying to reach um, unchurched people and um, people who are just hard to reach. And if your church is, is very uh, ornate and beautiful, um, but, but somebody who's unchurched might not see that as beauty, they may see that as intimidating. They may feel you know, like, hey, I'm not perfect, my life isn't perfect. Um, I've even heard people literally say, if I walk through the door of a church, all my hair will catch on fire, you yeah. know, because of the things I've done in my past. And, and, uh, and so I think, um, you know, being thoughtful and intentional about your atmosphere and what you're inviting people to, uh, to make that as non-threatening and open and welcoming and, um, us being willing to be honest and just be true, our true selves as well, no masks. Uh, no perfect people. We're all just a bunch of broken people trying to help mm -hmm. one another uh, follow Jesus. You know, it goes a long way, especially in a small community, and especially when you're trying to reach those who have had a hard life to know that you also maybe have um, experienced hard things, and um, and you're not ashamed of that, but rather you see how that shaped you and has molded you toward who you are today, and because of those things you've been through, um, you have victory in Christ and, and being able to help change those things. And it gives them hope, you know, that there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's hope for them too. So those atmospheres are, are important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just to reiterate, when you have a lack of judgment, it will make people a whole lot less reserved in sharing their own problems. Absolutely, yes. So to catch up, we're approaching the 30-minute marker here, which is great. This is great stuff. But we've been talking about the prevalence of small-town issues and how to look for signs of them in the families of the kids that you're serving. Um, let's talk about now when you've established that you know there's an issue, how can we help? And let's first talk about helping teenagers. And uh, I've got to say a little bit on probably what I think is the most uncomfortable part, uh, what I know there might be a huge stigma for youth workers is, is reporting. Uh, nobody wants to be the guilty party that separates a child from a parent. And um, uh, I've had that struggle myself. If you've listened to episode three, then you'll remember our guest host, Scott McAllister, who grew up as a kid in poverty in the foster system that eventually became a small town youth minister himself. And I contacted Scott about this subject and asked him to share his expertise with our listeners. And here's what he had to say. Scott writes, My youth pastor is actually the one who reported my mom for the final time, which resulted in me being taken away. And I couldn't be more thankful. I was in seventh grade and had no idea what to do. I just knew I needed out 
and I had no idea how to do that. In my experience as a group home worker, a youth pastor, the child of a foster care, I found that it's my responsibility as a leader and Christian to report suspected abuse to the proper agencies. It is uncomfortable and may bring drama into our lives, but if proper case is not built up in regards to the child and the abuser or abusers, then in many instances, the agencies can take no real action in a situation without sufficient evidence of continued abuse. Also, it's my responsibility as a leader and especially as a Christian to care for the orphan. If I'm going to make the report and possibly move the child out of their home, I should continue to pastor said child. Follow the case or caseworker, at very least make regular calls to the child and let them know they're supported and loved. If possible, go to court with the child, visit them in the shelter, take them out to Sonic. If you want to minister to a child, I guarantee you'll have no better opportunity than that. I don't think I can say much better than what Scott wrote, but I would like to share a little insight. I've learned that public services give people a lot of chances before they just go and take their kid away. And if you're going to report and you end up being the straw that, that breaks the camel's back, then having the kid taken away is the right thing to do for the sake of that child, no matter how much they might protest when they figure out about your involvement. Um, I remember a recent experience of my own, fearing to get involved in a DHS call, not knowing if what one person said was even true or not, and uh, I was really afraid of some can of worms opening up on myself. But I'll say that all of my misgivings went out the window after the reported events were confirmed. And so to those listening, I want to encourage you, uh, don't be afraid of serving the kids, even if you think that it's a big mess and might get some people angry at you. If the situations are bad enough, contact the appropriate authorities. Yeah, and that, and that being said, I think also, you know, regarding kids, um, how do you get to the pulse on what's actually going on in a kid's life? And I think as a leader, um, we have to be careful not to get too caught up in exactly what we're trying to teach them, because certainly we want to teach them the Bible. Uh, mm -hmm. We want to teach them all about how, how God loves them and how they can love God back and, and develop their own personal relationship with Christ and grow in that. Um, but uh, we can get so caught up in what we think we're supposed to be teaching them and, and I'll just say like our curriculum, that we forget how how incredibly important it is to get to know the kids personally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's that old saying that's so true, you know, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And yeah. and uh, a great example, and I'll go back to my teaching days uh, for this example, but I had a student in my class who would not do his homework. And my homework was not difficult, and it was not like very many problems. I was a science teacher. So there really wasn't a whole lot of take-home homework. Usually just maybe read a couple pages and answer these three or four questions. And this kid never had it done. And I remember um, wrongly assuming that it was just a case of laziness. Um, in my own mind, I was assuming this kid is just going home and playing you know, video games all night long and just blowing off uh, school. And it was frustrating because it's like, I'm carrying and pouring into you and you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not holding up your end of the bargain by doing something so simple as your homework. And uh, it came to parent teacher conference time and I was ready to, to really let the parents know exactly what I felt was going on in their student's life. 
And it was during that parent-teacher conference I realized that um, this kid was one of, uh, I can't remember, three or four siblings who were actually being raised uh, by an aunt and uncle uh, because uh, his actual parents were both in prison due to drugs. And so um, this aunt and uncle had taken in these four kids, plus they had three or four of their own. And the particular student that I had in my class was the oldest of all of the kids. And so when he got home from school, the parents worked, both of these, this aunt and uncle both worked like two jobs in order to support all of these kids. Mm. So it was his responsibility to take care of and watch over the, all these younger kids uh, from the time school got out until quite late in the evening, including making them suffer uh, each night. And so I just got a picture into this kid's life um, that totally changed my perspective of why he may or may not be getting his homework done. And it totally changed my heart. And I just felt wrecked that I didn't care enough. You know, here I thought I was caring for this kid by teaching him the curriculum. But I wasn't caring enough to actually know the kid intimately enough to know his situation at home. And that changed everything. And and it mm. just, from that point on, you know, as a teacher and then as a youth pastor after, I remember, you know, just realizing how important it is to know a little context and to get to know the kids uh, at a personal level so you can understand the why behind some of the decisions they make, the why behind some of the actions uh, that we see in their life, the why, like you were saying earlier, the why behind uh, acting out sometimes for that that kid that seems to be a troublemaker. And instead of just getting frustrated at them for always being the one that seems to be uh, causing problems in youth group or in the classroom, um, there might be some significant reasons behind that um, that you might, God might have brought you into their life to help them with you know yeah so loving on them understanding the worlds they're coming from uh, at least like the home life and and how that affects their priorities and their thinking and everything uh you can be an ally to them one that's not judging them probably like the, a lot of them are used to by other adults or even their classmates i would suppose where they're just like feeling nobody's there beside them for kids in these situations, I think that's great information. Let's move on to talking about helping the parents. Uh, this, this is the real meat here. This is where we really start interacting with these adults when they come in and they're really looking for help for whatever reason. And uh, it, can, it, can be, it can be a landmine. I don't know. What's the, what's the expression? A yeah. field full of landmines. <laughs> a minefield. A minefield. <laughs> yeah. It can be a minefield. Okay, so um, Mike, I learned a lot from coming in here, recognizing our policies and what we do offer and how we offer it. What would you tell the listeners about knowing what your church can do for people? Yeah, and I think it's it's first of all, you know, it is important to have some policies and some structure around how you help people, especially people who are outside of the family of the church, that's a little different. Uh, when they're people that are inside of the family of your church and you're a little more intimately involved with their lives and, uh, you know, you just know more about those situations and you have, there's more accountability there. Uh, but when it comes to people who are outside of that circle, who are, who are people who, you, who are not really part of the family of your church, you have to have policies in place. Um, and, you know, just some things that we've noticed, even in a small town, um, not everyone, but there are those people out there who really know how to work the system, you know, and, 
and um, they will go from church to church to church with the same utility bill that they can't uh, afford to pay. And they may actually get, get that fully funded by multiple different churches on that single day and then use the extra money for who knows what, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and, and so you just have to be careful, you know. One of the ways I realized that was early on in ministry, we, there was a, a, a lady that came in the church crying and sobbing with a bill. And um, I did not have access at the time. We were using an accountant to do all of our checks and stuff. And so I actually gave the woman a certain amount of cash to cover that bill because I believed her, I believed her story, and uh, knew that the church could pay me back out of our benevolence account at a, at a later date. Uh, I don't think she realized that I don't actually live in this town. I live in the next town over. And that evening, I went up to Casey's to get gas and saw her coming out of Casey's with three of her friends and about... Uh, eight cases of beer and loading it all in the back of a pickup and taking off for what looked like a big party. And oh. <laughs> and I just, I sat there dumbfounded and wondered, is the cash that I gave out this morning going towards all that alcohol for their party? Yeah. You know, and it's just like, oh my goodness. So yeah, you have to be careful um, uh, how, how you handle those situations. And so what we've done in, in our small community, um, all of the churches together are part of uh, a ministerial organization. And uh, each one of our churches donates money each year into that organization to help people with those uh, problems. And so there's one central location that they can go to for help. Instead of going church to church to church, uh, we all send them to a central location in order to uh, sometimes receive funds if that's necessary for a certain thing. And then that organization keeps track of how much is given out and how often. Um, but obviously, we want to help people beyond just the immediate crisis. We want to be able to go deeper. Uh, with them. And so, you know, it brings up, you know, what, what can we, what can we offer uh, to people? And, and um, we do have a benevolence account here that we use for people within the family of the church. And once in a great while, we will use that for people outside of the family of the church, if we are really aware of a situation. Another thing is we don't hand out uh, cash any longer. (laughs) That was, that was a mistake I made in my early days. Um, but if, if at all possible, if we believe somebody and we understand their situation, uh, what we will do is contact the utility company and try and pay the bill directly, yeah. uh, something like that. Um, and, and, and understanding and knowing what other helps are available for them in the community, um, because sometimes these people have just jumped to the church for assistance when there's actually other systems uh, that they need to be involved in. And so one of the things also is to know what those systems are in your community, what helps are available, um, knowing some of those people, and then also knowing the people who know people. I don't know if that makes sense, but yes. I don't know that I know every system that's available to somebody in our community, but I know I can send somebody to MICA, which is Mid-Iowa Community Action, and um, they are the ones who really understand and know many other things, and so I want to make yeah. sure that people are, are involved in that. But within the church here, our, ourself, I would say, you know, the best thing a church can be uh, for a community is to be a church. You can't be everything for everybody. You can't be a homeless shelter and a soup kitchen. You know, you just can't be everything. Mm-hmm. And if you tried to spread yourself that thin, you wouldn't be able to do any of them very well. Yeah. And so I believe it was Andy Stanley uh, that said this a few years ago, but the best thing a church can be is to be a church. And that's what we strive to be really, really well. So we support those parachurch organizations. We support those other uh, missions in the community and those other systems that exist to help people, uh, but we really focus on being a church and and we want to help fix the underlying cause in people. You know, besides just giving people fish, 
we want to teach them to fish. And besides just helping them with the crisis that's, that's caused them to be stressed and anxious and, and at the end of their rope, can we help to mend their heart and their soul and help them to see, you know, what, what God has in, in store for their life uh, if they were, were able to put Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know? And so, honestly, uh, some of the best resources we have as a church is, is the church family getting people uh, plugged in and involved in, in uh, Sunday morning service and getting to beginning to know uh, other people who can be positive influences for them. Uh, this, the system we've put in place is to have small groups is uh, a way to not only pour into and have Bible study for the, the adults that are in our church, but also it creates sub-communities of people who are connected with, to other people in their small group and, um, and they can help one another, you know. Um, and those people in your church, all of the, the rest of the family of the church are resources. Sometimes they're aware of a job opening. Sometimes they're aware yeah. of a cheap rental property. You know, you, you never know, but what, what, but God, what, what I've seen God does is God uses people to help other people, you know, very seldom, even in scripture, do you see God actually just act without acting through somebody? You yeah. know, and so, and that doesn't have to be the senior pastor or the youth pastor. There's a whole family of people mm-hmm. in this church and in other churches in this community that God uses. And so, you know, understanding the church and small groups or Sunday school classes or whatever you have really are great resources that you have. And then above and beyond that, in our church, we've chosen to do a couple of, of other things uh, to help with a couple of the biggest problems in our community, you know, and one of those things is we try and offer at least once a year uh, Financial Peace University. Uh, finances are another huge obstacle, uh, I'm sure, in every community across the world, but especially in rural America, um, and, and helping to understand how to handle our money God's way and, and with some discipline is huge. And so we try and, and offer Financial Peace University. And above and beyond that, we will help to scholarship people through that program. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a couple of people in our church who have been really awesome at getting Celebrate Recovery uh, started. And that has been a huge resource, not only for people who are coming out of addiction or alcoholism, um, but also for, you know, anything, any tragedy, any hardship in life that has left a scar and a mark uh, in your life that you've never really been able to move on from. Celebrate Recovery is a group of people that um, that is a great group organization to get involved in and and keep moving forward so that's another huge um, uh, resource that we have inside of the church yeah if i could just you know bounce off that real quick um great things about what we can go above and beyond just handing out cash you said like the community being known in small groups programs that the church supports like uh, fpu or celebrate recovery uh, it reminds me of something that Dr. Ruby K. Payne said, and we've mentioned her in the podcast before in her book, What the Church Needs to Know About Poverty. Financial resources are not the only things these people need, but also an emotional and spiritual resource. A quote from her in this book, these are things that will actually get someone to see themselves not as hopeless and useless, but rather as capable and having worth and value. Yeah, and so I, yeah, I, I totally agree with that, you know, because there is the, there's a difference between the immediate crisis that somebody's going through or the last couple years of hardship that somebody's going through and this person that God created inside um, 
that has gifts and talents that maybe they haven't even discovered yet? And what better place is there for encouraging that true identity than through a church where you understand who your true identity is in Christ? You know, that's awesome. Um, and then outside of the church, if you're a church leader uh, at any level, um, it's important for you to understand that some of the systems that are around you. And so who is a local counselor that can do a better job than you at counseling somebody that actually needs that? You know, we need to be humble enough to understand what our own limitations are. And so while I certainly can do some spiritual counseling in people's lives, um, it's better for me to pass them off to a professional counselor, uh, especially a Christian counselor, if, if, if at all possible. Um, so, so having a relationship with one or two counselors, having a good relationship with your local police uh, department, or maybe if you're in a super rural area, it's the local sheriff's department, um, because you're going to be working with some of the same people a lot, um, and so you can help each other out. Also, having a good relationship with, the, um, with your local hospital um, and administration at that hospital, because you're going to get called in for tragedies and things there, too. And, and so um, these are the, you know, some of the outside of the church resources that it's a good idea to develop a relationship with those people early on. So they know you exist, you know they exist, and uh, there are ways that you can partner uh, with each other for, in certain circumstances. Yes, yes. So knowing what's out there and how to refer, this is great stuff. Uh, to help you navigate these these tricky encounters, I would just reiterate just to be careful. Uh, if uh, anything, I've experienced when people try to get me to bend rules because I have a relationship with their kid, and they're using that as leverage. And uh, in these moments, I would encourage you to act in a way that Jesus condones. In Matthew ten sixteen, he says we should be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Uh, we are going to see craftiness that may be happening. We're going to stick to our policies and, and, and not overpromise things that we can't deliver on because we want to be good stewards. But ultimately, we want to act like Christ. We, we want to uh, show them love and we don't want to get our underwear in, in a pinch and end up acting in a way that isn't honorable to our positions. And I know also from personal experience, that can be kind of hard. Uh, I would just like to encourage you, one final word for me, is to know that you will have times when people try to trick you, people who try to get you to bend the rules or do something beyond what you can really do. You're gonna wanna be frustrated in response, especially when you are seeing crazy things like people spinning these aggravatingly vague stories are having unrealistic expectations about what you can offer them. I literally remember this one time when I was starting out in ministry and I was even living in humble circumstances in government subsidized apartments. This guy had the audacity to ask me to help him get a house. And it was just like, you mean like you want to find her like a rental place? And he was like, no, I need to buy a house. And I was like, oh, wow. And I think Mike was telling me, what'd you say that a guy yeah, I, said he claimed? I Yeah, I had a gentleman call me one time and his daughter uh, was in a tight spot and um, basically told me that he had heard that we buy people cars. And so he wanted us to buy her a car. 
Yeah, and it was like, uh, I don't even know you, but I, we have never bought anybody a car, and we, um, I don't know, maybe there's churches out there that are sitting on the uh, on a gold mine, but uh, not ours. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and so these misunderstandings about what you can offer and what people are trying to sort of leverage out of you can be really frustrating. Uh, also, I've experienced when I have bent over backwards trying to use my resources. We're not just talking about cash, but like I've called in favors and poured out the influence I had over others to get some kind of help for somebody. I just recently had an experience where there was a mother who was breaking up with her husband and was going to get the children out of the situation. They're looking for a place to store some furniture while they're waiting on a new place to open up. And also, I might I know anybody who wants to get rid of beds and couches and things. And I uh, went after it. And I went to help these people and used resources that I had and asked people to give and only to find out after the move had happened, then she got back with the old husband. And it made it just extremely frustrating for me. And I wanted to give him a piece of my mind and say, like, you realize, like, I went to bat for you. And I would encourage you to realize that in a lot of situations, these people aren't dedicated Christ followers. And so the situation does not justify a harsh rebuke. I want to turn you to Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where it's written, Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Make sure that we're always acting lovingly and like Christ in these situations towards outsiders. It will be rough. It will be awkward. But what matters most is how we interact with these people as much as what we can give them. So that's all I have on this. Mike, is there anything else you'd like to add on the subject? Oh, I just, you know, just maybe some encouragement that, uh, you know, Jesus said the poor will always be with you. <laughs> and, yep. And uh, he also said that the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. And and we know our, our heart with Christ leading us and filled by the Holy Spirit is to reach uh, people who are hard to reach and to love on people who are sometimes hard to love and to get messy. Um, and when you get messy, you're going to have frustrating situations. You're going to do things where you get burned. We all have. We all do. Don't let that get you down. Don't let that get, get you frustrated. Um, if you decide to help people once in a while with a, with a little bit of money, sometimes it's going to be used appropriately and sometimes it's not. And that happens. And we try and continue to trust God. But, you know, praying for discernment because while the harvest is plenty, um, when you're harvesting, you want to harvest what's right. You know, and so praying for huge discernment from God to understand that any opportunity you have to interact with somebody, especially when they're going through a tough time in life, is a is a huge opportunity to invest in them and help them turn a corner. Um, but even in the midst of that, there are going to be some people who are who are ripe and who are ready for that and others who are not. And um, having the discernment of, of being gentle and, and gracious with both but willing to take maybe the extra step with those who are ready to yes. make real change in their life, you know? And mm -hmm. so as we go about harvesting the discernment of what's, what's a ripe fruit and what's not a ripe fruit <laughs> yes, yes. Is, 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 is necessary. Well, before we go at the end, I always ask for suggestions for our listeners and Mike, what would you suggest to anybody listening to this podcast 
just from your own personal experience, what, what has reached out and really helped you as a pastor? Well, as we were talking about this earlier, I, you know, off topic a little bit, just some things that are going on in my own life. Um, I think a really wonderful resource that I've been uh, reading lately, and we've been going through this as our board of servant leaders here at the church. Uh, we've been going through the book and, and small group study uh, entitled Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Schizero. And um, to me, that's been a really um, just a freeing book. You know, I think in our culture, and, and I'm not immune to it, we can get very busy and we can allow our busyness to be a badge of honor that if you're not busy or lazy and so you have to be busy and you have to look busy and 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 the 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 first cousin of busyness is stress and anxiety and a frown and a, a fast walk and i've been trying to slow down and realize like uh, that's not biblical. <laughs> and so um enjoying life, enjoying some quiet time with God, um being willing to laugh and take it easy uh and and realizing that uh I don't have anything to prove to anybody but but God himself and so uh it's actually made me I think healthier and and happier and and a better pastor not being as busy and and stressed out. And I think another thing along with that you preached a, a sermon in our church a few weeks ago about change of place uh, plus a change of pace equals a change of heart. And, mm -hmm. and yeah. so one, th one thing for my life, I mean, we do live in an ag community. We have a number of different farmers that are attend our, that attend our church. And, and uh, one family that I've known for, for years and years and, and uh, just love, uh, our kids were the same age. Um, I've gotten the opportunity to go help them uh, with spring planting and fall harvest. And so uh, taking a few weeks of a different change of pace and helping with planting and harvest and uh, spending hours in the tractor, bouncing through the field, and uh, just being a part of that. Uh, it's been wonderful, just getting out in God's creation. So that's been a fun hobby that's uh, just been awesome for me lately, I think, is uh, changing the pace up. So if you get a chance to do that, even if you're a city guy that ended up in a rural area, if you got a farmer in your church, uh, ask, ask him to teach you drive a tractor. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I've got like 19 sermon ideas from, from farming examples. <laughs> awesome. That's one of the best suggestions we've had on the podcast. So I need yeah. to teach you to drive a tractor now. Oh, we'll You've see. You've heard it here. Okay. Kyle's going to learn to drive a tractor. Okay. <laughs> so emotionally healthy spirituality and drive yourself a tractor. Um, I would just suggest something I've stumbled across recently. The Small Town Big Church Podcast. It's networked with the Rural Matters Institute. Uh, I've been listening to this lately and... What I'm consistently hearing from them, no matter the subject of the podcast that I'm listening to, is that they want rural pastors to know that we serve a God who thinks you matter as much as the megachurch pastors, that you aren't less than. It's really encouraging stuff, so I encourage you to go check that out. We want to thank you for listening to the show, and as a thank you, we want to continue to bless you by giving you some free resources. Check out the link tree posted both on the Instagram and Facebook page for tons of great stuff, including games and lessons provided by our guests on the show. And if you have any questions or a story you want to share, please email us at smalltownyouthmenpodcast at gmail.com. That's smalltownyouthmenpodcast at gmail.com. In the next episode, we'll be talking about balancing duties as a sign. So make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and God bless.